Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. My guest today is Dr. Apila Colorado, the president of the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network and who lives in Hawaii. Although we knew each other 30 years ago, we have recently reconnected on a webinar with Leroy Littlebear on indigenous approaches to science and culture, where Apila and Leroy as elders spoke on behalf of the voice of the earth. We urgently need to listen to what the earth is telling us, but also to our dreams, which Apila has been working on through the Chartres Academy. She is of Aneda Gaul ancestry and has dedicated her life's work to bridging Western thought and indigenous worldviews. She studied for her doctorate at both Harvard and Brandeis universities and received her PhD from Brandeis in social policy in 1982. She then founded the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network in 1989 to foster the revitalization, growth and worldwide exchange of traditional knowledge and to safeguard the lives and work of the world's endangered traditional practitioners. In 1997, she was one of 12 women chosen from 52 countries by the State of the World Forum to be honored for her role as a woman leader. In addition to WISN, that's how you pronounce Worldwide Indigenous Science Network, Apila has founded the Indigenous Science and Peace Studies. And this is the first fully accredited advanced degree program taught from an indigenous perspective that integrates consciously Western knowledge. So Apila, a warm welcome to Imaginal Inspirations. And I'd like to start by asking you about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Good morning, David, and to all the other time zones of the world listening to this. I'm lighting, I'm lighting some cedar, perhaps can hear the flames or the fire addressing the directions and invoking the participation and the help of my ancestors, not only my lineage, my direct genetic lineage, but all my relations, all of the intelligences that make up reality. The moment that comes to mind, I'm four years old and it's a family gathering and my grandfather called me to him. My grandfather was the only traditional cultural practitioner in, in our family, which was a big French Indian family. He called me to him and I was his favorite grandchild and I knew it and I loved that. And he was warm and loving the things you'd really wish a child would have in a grandfather. So I came eagerly <laughs> running to his embrace he held me on his knee and he looked at the family and he said, when Apila grows up, she's going to go to university. The whole family listened and David, there was no one that had ever gone to university in my family on either side. And actually I didn't even know what one was. So that moment was pivotal. It was pivotal because my grandfather taught me my indigenous culture, but, but more than a culture, he taught me where to stand, where to be between the worlds. And that moment codified for me my path that I would be going in both a traditional indigenous way as well as a Western way. How interesting. So in a way, you could say that your grandfather was your first mentor. Absolutely. But before my grandfather, there, there was the North Woods, there was the moon, there was the, the snow swirling around in the deep winter with the aurora borealis overhead and just the eerie haunting call of the wolves howling at night just for the pure beauty and, and passion of the extreme cold of the North Woods. Those were the teachers that my grandfather listened to, and those were the teachers that he introduced me to through his loving presence. How beautiful. I, I'm just wondering, when you were at university, did you also have a mentor who was 
very helpful in putting you on your path? Oh, thank you for asking. I had two mentors in my master's program, Dr. Robert O. Washington, who was a African-American man, brilliant man, and he saw something in me and he saw to it that I had my master's degree placement in an American Indian uh, community organization. And he also took me, he flew with me to Boston to introduce me to professors and friends of his from Brandeis University. And without his encouragement, I never, I wouldn't have known how to apply for a PhD or I wouldn't even have thought of it probably. My second mentor was Dr. David Gill at Brandeis University and David, um, David's mother had died in a concentration camp. David had uh, 1920s, 30s um, socialist outlook, Jewish socialist outlook. And he, he just supported me every step of the way Notably, um, there was a time when I got stuck writing, writing my doctoral dissertation for over a year. I would sit at my Selectric typewriter at the Harvard Indian program, be there for hours with tears running down my face. They'd ask me for a simple thing, uh, an outline for the next six chapters, and I couldn't do it. And I went home to Oneida, Wisconsin. We had a peyote ceremony, and... After that, I came to the realization, well, I was told at the end of it, I needed to make an offering to a tree when I got back to Boston. And I have to tell you, being really westernized by this time, I thought it was, people will think I'm crazy if they see me talking to a tree. But I did it anyway, because I'm a Northwoods girl and I love the forest. So I did it. And sure enough, it worked. Poetry came to me, American Indian uh, themed got published and the poems that were published were the outline for my next six chapters. And David Gill said to me, when I told him, I said, as a result of the ceremony, I can't write this, tell you what I'm going to do the next six chapters because it will be after I do it, I can tell you what it is. In an indigenous way, we don't do it that way. It's revelatory. So he said to me, well, it's okay, just make up a six chapter outline and we won't hold you to it, but you'll satisfy the requirements. And that's the kind of backing that I had from him. He also encouraged me to include my poetry in the dissertation. And at the end, he let me and and advocated that I had a chapter that said from an indigenous point of view, how I had written the dissertation. And the final mentor I had was Dr. Chet Pierce. Uh, Dr. Chet Pierce was an MD. Uh, at Harvard University, and he was a psychologist. And he was just amazing because I really needed support, emotional and uh, psychological support to handle the stress of the tension between the worlds at the time. So fascinating I, and so, so supportive. And, and I wonder if, is there anything you remember from any of these three mentors that, that they gave you with? or any advice you remember that they gave you, um, which proved helpful? Uh, Chet Pierce reminded me that I had paid my dues, so to speak, because it's when coming from a, a people, then we would have said a minority people, but coming from that background, there's the feeling if, if we have opportunities that the rest of the community doesn't, it's hard to it's hard to continue on. It's hard to break from the community, especially for an American Indian person. It's hard to let go of the community, including at that time real suffering, a feeling like I mustn't leave. I have to stay in this, and it's difficult to accept the the largesse of the majority world when my community is back here doing without. So Chet Pierce helped me negotiate those stormy waters inside. Mm. Very, very supportive again. And I'm wondering, we've been talking about the trees, the book of nature, if you like, whether any critical books at that point that shaped your thinking? I think it's, <laughs> I have to tell you, I think it's more the tree. I used to go, you know, uh, when I was at Brandeis, 
I had never been in a situation where I was learning with people of extreme wealth, privilege, and I did not fit in. I hadn't had that kind of background. There were no other American Indians in the program. It was so traumatizing for me. I used to, um, when I would, when I would be approaching the, the Heller School, the building, especially during the statistics class time, and I'd be so frightened, I would actually throw up with fear before I go, would go into the building. And right before the building was a pine tree, and for my Oneida people, our Oneida Aga people, the pine tree, the great white pine is Skanakoa. It's the embodiment of the great law of peace, which my people are known for. It's a 2,000-year-old constitution, and it's a democracy. One of the world's oldest living constitutions. I used to say it was the oldest until I met Oromo people in uh, in southern Ethiopia. And they said, oh, no, <laughs> ours is older. So, all right, it is older, actually. So you know, that tree, that tree was everything to me. I would hold it for my reality. And the tree itself was my teacher and has been my teacher. Because, you know, if you look at the tree symbolically, which is only part of the way we indigenous people would look at the tree because mm-hmm. it's alive, it's intelligent, it can communicate. But how? You have to learn how to communicate. I had to learn how to listen, how to experience the tree. And it's really strange, David, because if I fast forward, that tree that I made the offering to when I was a young doctoral student, that tree has just been with me all of my life. For example, when in the founding of the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network, there was a meeting that I had organized of 13 Indigenous women and non-Indigenous from around the world. And we met at this little town in Mexico and it was serendipitous, it wasn't planned. It turned out that the, that the community that we were meeting at, the very community in which the name Worldwide Indigenous Science Network came, and Dr. Elizabeth Saturos, a Gaia biologist that you know of, was one of the women that uh, helped in this naming ceremony. That naming ceremony occurred at a village in Mexico that's famous for creating the tree of life, uh, pottery and ceramics. So the the tree helped me that way. And when I began to write about indigenous knowledge as indigenous science, which also came out of a peyote meeting, when I began to write about it that way, it was through the viewpoint of Skanakoa, the great law of peace, the great white pine of my ancestors. Beautiful. And, and in a way, you've answered the next question already. Um, but I just wonder whether there's an, another key moment of insight in the development of your work um, that you'd like to tell us about. One thing that's amazing is that growing up in Wisconsin as a Oneata'aga, Oneida, which is people of the stone, the long living stone in ancient in ancient days, well, not so ancient compared to some of the, uh, like Egypt or really old cultures, but at least a few thousand years ago, when we traveled, this large boulder would travel with us and it levitated because our minds and the minds of that stone were one. So the thing about the stone is that, you know, there are a lot of carvings on the rocks and indigenous people worldwide, we understand that the rocks can hear and elders would always tell us be careful what you say around these rocks because that's going into the earth and it will be remain there for future generations um, the rocks carried the story because the story of life begins with the rocks both western science and indigenous wise that reminds me of psychokinesis you know the, uh, the psychometry rather you know, where, where this is object reading. And so people can read some ex- experience out of objects. And, and this is rather like what you're saying, that you, you read the memory of the, of the rocks, of what the rock has experienced. 
Yes, and it's it's not easy to do with rocks, even like even the petroglyphs. It took it it took me almost twenty years to understand one, because rocks are slow in their communication for our human minds. Plants are a bit easier, but even with a plant, a friend of mine who is a traditional healer with plants, it took him seven years with one plant. And even then he said he hadn't exhausted all that that plant could be and was. So that's an amazing food. So getting back, I want to get back to the rock and carrying the story. So what, what we found at Oneida is that even though our culture had been just devastated and we had been relocated in the 1820s. So and relocated by um, uh, um, a minister to Wisconsin uh, amongst people that we had been quite cruel to uh, previous in previous generations with war and, and invasions and so forth. Um, I don't take a romantic view of American Indian history um, because I think it's really important to acknowledge the shadow we all carry um, and it helps. It helps. Um, it helps in the freeing of victimized identities to acknowledge the shadow. But anyway, what I'm coming to is this: being a person of mixed descent, French and Indian origin, um, I, because of my close relationship with my grandfather, my identity as an American Indian was fixed. My French identity was less fixed because um, we didn't even know until my grandfather was elderly that he was fluent in French. And we didn't know much about that side of our family. But in terms of Oneida heritage, that was also really, um, really, really um, de like devastated. And what my generation said is that we wanted to get our culture back. And I was, a, I was a part, an active member in the American Indian movement and worked at the Milwaukee headquarters with Herb Paulus, who was the head of it at that time, um, and, and Dorothy Ninham. So we began to go out looking for our ceremonies again, looking for identity again. And eventually it just ended up that it was Dorothy and myself and one old Lakota medicine man who came to help us. And the men just kind of said, oh, you women are crazy, but actually they were watching to see what happened, I think. We would meet in an attic upstairs in a, a house in um, the center of Milwaukee, and it, Milwaukee was the beer drinking capital of the world at the time. So every corner had a bar on it. We're meeting in these kind of dilapidated situations. But what happened in those ceremonies with just women and children and this old Lakota medicine man, as the spirits would come in and you could see lights flashing in the darkness and you could hear the voices of the spirits talking in your ears and the doors would slam and floors would heave. And we just took that as that's why you do the ceremonies to establish this communication, right? We didn't know that that didn't happen for a lot of tribes, that the power had been lost of this direct connection. And one day, the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of forming my life between the worlds is uh, a group of, of elderly American Indian cultural practitioners were talking and one man said, the problems of this world can be solved when the white man remembers again who he is, then we can sit together in peace and work out our differences. My heart was singing because that told me two things. One, what was lost could be remembered again. And two, there was a way forward for me to bring the parts of myself together through my, an, an indigenous identity. And that's what I've done. I traveled to France many, many times. And now I go every year for ceremonies. 
with the Occitan people and the people who take care of the Paleolithic painted caves of the south of France. And I'm just so grateful that that still exists in Europe, despite 1,500 years of, of genocidal, uh, I don't know, just genocidal action against the indigenous reality of European people. Yes. I was going to ask you a little more about, you know, reconnecting with your French ancestors. Um, and you, you said a little bit about that, but there's also a connection, I believe, with Chartres. Mm, yes. Well, one thing that was really, you know, you, you can tell when you're on the path that you're meant to be on because, yes, there are challenges, but things fall into place in an uncanny way. One of the synchronicities in my life is my mother went to a family reunion. This was many years ago, and it was on the French side. And there was a priest because, of course, in, on my French side, there's lots of nuns and priests going back through time. <clears throat> she came away from that family gathering, and she had a book which had our family history, the Paternosters, which means our uh, it's our, the Lord's Prayer, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that's what our family name is. And it got shortened in the U.S. to Patnode. But Paternoster wasn't that we are the Lord's Prayer. It was that my family made a kutrama for, um, for the Dominicans back in medieval times and were in a guild. So my mom gave me this complete family history going back to the 1200s. And there it breaks off because of uh, Reformation and so forth and the destruction of records in France. But I had not just only a genealogy, but a complete history. So I went back through all those places trying to remember what happened to our, what happened to our spiritual power, what happened to our, uh, our identity. Because, David, it's really clearly most, I think, most thinking Europeans would realize something is missing in their lives. But as an American Indian cultural person, when coming out of ceremonial life, remembered and renewed, and I look at Europe and I just think, you guys have been robbed. And you can see the dissociation that's happened from the trauma of history, but you can get it back. And here's a good example of how it came back to me. About part of my family line comes from right near the uh, village of Chartres. And it happened that I was leading a university trip uh, on the Black Madonna and Mary Magdalene. And we went to various sites in the south of France and then came up near Paris. And we, it turned out we had an extra day uh, at the end of the trip. We had done really well and found some time. So someone, I don't know who, said, let's go to Chartres. So off we went. And when we got there, I led a ceremony by, again, by a tree, right? And, mm -hmm. and interestingly enough, it was a sycamore tree. And that's the tree that our chiefs sat under when they made deliberations, when they enacted the constitution, right? So we made a ceremony there. And out of that, we established the new Chartres Mystery School with the intention to reenact first the liberal arts that had been celebrated there. And you know, David, that's Chartres marks a place that originally was the center of the Gaul indigenous world, uh, all the Celtic world of what is modern day Western Europe would meet at the hill of Chartres under the oak trees and at the top of a hill whose uh, center inside the hill was a cave with a spring and a place where black and white rock meet. Uh, so this was a place where the Druids held their ceremonies. It would have been the place, I reckon, where my, my indigenous ancestors met. So we made this decision that we would recreate the mystery school. We did, and my job there has been holding the indigenous uh, remembrance of that place. So when I went there, I knew from research that European people used to blow an auroch horn to the directions. And I had my husband help me make a horn 
but I had to use Longhorn steer because no aurochs anymore on account of history and killing off all the or the aurochs. So I made this horn and then based on a Celtic story I heard, I knew I should go out at midnight. So I went out at midnight at Chartres very timidly because it's an old town area of Chartres where we're in. And and there's stone walls and I knew blowing this horn is going to be loud and I was hoping I didn't get arrested or something. So I went out, I blew the horn and I called to the ancestors, my French ancestors, the Gaul Carnut ancestors. And I said how, who I was, how sorry I am or was that we hadn't remembered them in all this time and asked if they would please come forward and, and help me to remember my identity and renew it so we could heal the earth and ourselves. And um, what I didn't know <laughs> is that two months before this, not even two months, uh, municipal workers in Chartres uh, had been doing some work on a car park and had dug into a small cave that, that where it's, it's situated in front of to where today's cathedral is. It's in front of that, about five, six blocks. They dug into this small cave and in this cave was a niche. And in the niche was a box and the box was still uh, somewhat intact. And it was because the conditions for storage were absolutely perfect. When archeologists arrived and they examined the artifacts, what was in the box, David, is the world's only ever discovered complete Gaul ritual set. So my experience was, I thought I'm going there calling to the ancestors. I didn't realize that they were already there in a ceremony and I was one of probably many people responding to their call. And out of that, in the ensuing years, evolved this model of dream work. It's unlike any model of dream work that exists today uh, in the field of dream research and in the dream literature. And it's different because it's place-based and it is collective and it runs ceremonially. <laughs> and we do things in, in our curating of the dreams that is different. We open it with a certain kind of music, drone instrumentation. And when people share dreams in the circle, we open with a prayer. And as the dreams are, are being shared, there's no crosstalk. This is not analytical. And it's, it's the purpose is to seek out what David Bohm called the implicate order. What are the patterns that are being revealed through these through the collection of dream work, through the collection of dreams. So in one week, we may have as many as 100 dreams that are reported Monday through Friday. And in order to be able to uh, have that in mind with that, with that complexity, we illustrate the dreams graphically, we write the dreams, and then every day we meet and we talk about the dreams. This way of looking at dreams comes out of my Oneida heritage, we, we graphically illustrate the dreams that are reported and we record them in audio form as well as take notes on them. At the, end, at the end of a day of dream work, we array the glyph sheets or the uh, illustrated sheets and we sit on the floor and it seems to matter if you're on the ground, it seems to help. Um, and I learned that when we did dream work in South Africa with the Bushmen. And we had so many dreams reported. It was a, a, a racially, culturally mixed group with uh, four different tribes from South Africa and largely people of European descent from all over the world. There were about 40, 50 people there. And the dreams were so many, there was no table big enough to hold the sheets. So we had to lay them out on the hard pan soil of South Africa with rocks on them. And there were obviously some tribal symbols in them. So I asked the, the tribal men, they were all men, it happened. I asked them to come take a look at them. 
And these tribal guys were holding back, like they weren't going to participate with all these crazy white Europeans in their dream work. But I could see they were interested. So I asked them separately to come look at the at the glyph sheets. And to my amazement, we were, they were standing and they were looking down at the paper. And then some, one of them said, there's been an animal killed on this site. It was a big cat, actually. It was a panther type of cat. And they said, there's been a, a leopard. That's, there's been a leopard killed on this land recently, and there need to be ceremonies done for it. And the woman who's the head of the organization, Linda Tucker with the White Lions, Timavati, was amazed because actually that had happened, but she was the only one that knew of it. And then another man, another man said, one of the people drawing here is pregnant. And of course, the woman, <laughs> she, didn't, she hadn't told anyone, right? And I was watching them, like, how, how are they doing this? And I realized that by virtue of the sheets being on the ground, they were tracking through the symbols. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they could read them through this tracking method. Well, I knew that at Chartra, we didn't know how to track like the Bushmen, but I reckoned that keeping them on the floor and close to the earth as possible would help. And it does seem to help. Although we'll have to give that a lot more thought and study to be able to talk about it intelligently. <clears throat> Tell us a bit more about the, the themes that have been emerging in the last period from these dreams uh, and about the fox and the trickster. Oh, yes. So one of the things, the first five to six years doing DreamWork at Chartra, and notably that this model came together in the fourth liberal art, which is musica, which brings the seven, the three on either side together. Musica brings the liberal arts together. And (laughs) that's when it brought the ceremony together. Uh, one lady drove in a Volkswagen all the way from Germany with this huge monochord because she felt called to do it. And she was wandering through the halls of the, the cathedral and, the, and our lodging, wandering up and down these old medieval halls carrying this big boxy instrument. So I asked her what she was doing and she said, I know I'm supposed to be here, but there's no room on the schedule. So I said, well, come in. We could use your help to center ourselves when we began our dream work. And then another woman showed up who did glyphing for uh, organizational development. So it just landed in our at our footsteps. Hmm. Anyway, the first dreams were more with warning us about the danger we were getting into with the earth. And then after a while, the warnings became more urgent and it's it's like direct messages coming in through dreamers dreams you must act now there is no more time so and at the same time um the awareness that we had connected with the ancient beings intelligences connected with that site happened in a number of ways for example and immediate direct ways. One woman dreamt she was visiting her mother, parked her car, and when she got out of her car, noticed a street sign that said Clovis. And she said, she was an American, she said, I don't know why. What a strange name. I don't know why I dreamt that. I don't know. That's not the name of the street. But I knew Clovis was the last traditional chief of France, right? So when that happened, a huge, the same period of time, a huge lightning thunderstorm hit. And it was so powerful that it shook the medieval stone building that has walls like this thick, right? Three feet, we would would say in America. And those thunders, in my indigenous knowledge, the thunder beings announced the that the gods are coming. And after that, many, many, many dreams featured the appearance of the old Gaul Celtic spirits making themselves known. So that's one thing that happened on the site of Chartres. But now in this pandemic time, 
we've done two or three sessions of dream work that's virtual. We were not certain if it worked. We need not have worried. It not only worked, but has led the dream work to its next progression. Um, notably, three weeks ago, we did a session called Dancing with Uncertainty. A psychologist friend of mine, Jurgen Kramer, had helped put together a, a Zoom conference that went on a few weeks about how to cope uh, productively and creatively with the uncertainty that we're living in today. And in this, in the description of the conference, the trickster was acknowledged with the idea being that how to dance creatively means engaging with trickster energy. And we all know that the trickster like is raven, coyote, and it's a being that typically does things backwards and lots of times for the wrong reasons, um, but it works out good in the end. It's just that when you're engaging with the trickster, you normally don't get to look too good while you're going through the process. So when I read the description, it kind of frightened me because the trickster is also one of the most powerful energies that we deal with in Native American ceremonies. The, the power behind it is lightning and thunder and our most powerful medicine people have that ability. And I'll give you a really quick example of a, of a Hayoka or a trickster uh, medicine man. A friend of mine, Robert Fasthorse, when we were young, he and his he and two of his friends, one of whom was uh, a trickster medicine man, uh, were together. And this Hayoka medicine man said that he needed to go on a fast, a vision quest, which is four days, four nights, no food, no water. Um, and normally these things are planned months and months and months ahead of time because it's a lot of preparation. But this guy needed to do it like in two days, the third day out on the hill or so forth. So Robert and his other friend were just going all over, trying to assemble everything that they needed to assemble, including a beautiful new star quilt. And then they had to make thousands of tobacco ties, these little uh, tobacco wrapped in tiny like one inch squares of fabric and then all tied like chain link kind of tied together. So they stayed up for almost two days and nights just trying to get all this done. They go to Bear Butte where the fast will be. They walk up the hill and there's one path. As you're walking up there, there's a sign that says, like, go no further, Indians praying. I thought, wow, should have put that sign on the East Coast. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he, they, they set him out, they put the tobacco ties around him, the prayer flags, everything, and they say, okay, we'll come back and check you tomorrow morning. He says, okay. So Robert and his friend walk down the, the path off of Bear Butte to the car park. They get down there, and the Hayoka's waiting for them. And they're like, what are you doing here? Also, how did you get here? There's one trail, and you weren't on it. We were. And he says, I'm done. They're, what? He said, I'm done. I'm done with the fast. And of course, they want to throttle the guy. But at the same time, they know there is magic afoot because there's no way he could have been down in that car park before them. So that's how trickster energy can work. And that's with someone that really knows what they're doing. In the case of the Dancing with Uncertainty Dreamers, again, we have 40 people scattered from around the world, and they don't mostly know each other. Um, and they're not, they're not united in any obvious way. Like they're not a part of any particular program. They just found this description on the web and, of this course and signed up for it. So here we are doing our dream work and our dream team of seven people. We're all ready. I've got the recorder on. We've got the Glyphers, two of them, one from England, as a matter of fact, and the graphic artist from Mexico and the photographer from South Africa, the sound man from Wisconsin, and myself over here on Maui, and a note taker, our scribe in Maryland. Away we go. We're ready. Wouldn't you know, 
dealing with uncertainty, with its focus on the trickster, the first thing that showed up in the dreams was the fox. And the fox, you know, is a trickster figure, and it's an animal that covers the whole world. And the fox dreams, there were three that were reported by people who didn't know each other. First one from Kazakhstan, the guy sees a rabid fox by his door. He knows he has to kill it, and he's choking the fox, but he's so torn, he doesn't want to do it. He takes the fox, and it's not quite dead yet, and chucks it over the side of a, a hill, and he doesn't know if it, he knows he didn't kill it outright, but he doesn't know if it lived or died. The second dreamer says she also sees a fox, but the fox, although at first it appears aggressive, she realizes it's afraid. In the end of the dream is cradling the fox in her arms and she can feel its fear. The third person said, well, this is not really a dream, but when I think of it, it feels like a dream. I was sitting in my easy chair last Sunday at my house in Inverness, which is a rural area outside of San Francisco. The back door was open and up the stairs came a fox and it walked into the living room, looked around, turned around and walked out. And I would have thought it was a dream, except my roommate saw it as well. So you see multiple levels of reality converging. And this is important because through this dream work, what we are trying to do is heal the dissociation of our modern minds. And how does that happen? The dimensions come together. So what what happened to the dream team curating the dreams is this. I began researching the symbolism of the fox. I mean, there, there were many, many other elements to, the, to these dreams. It's a very rich and very complex data set. But the fox was the obvious one to start with. So as I researched the fox, I found out an amazing thing, that the fox is in every continent. It's very adaptable. And in the Arctic, a fox hunts on top of three feet of snow for the little rodents that are in the grass beneath the snow. And the way that they hunt is one, they must have complete silence, which it is in the Arctic, and they listen. But they're only 38% effective, science says, by listening. Where their real focus comes in is by sight. They can see the Earth's magnetism, and it looks like a a darkening crescent or ring in their eyes. And when they, the closer to true north they turn their heads, the darker the ring gets. And when that ring is cross-tabulated with what they're hearing, which is a mathematics that they use to to focus missiles with, it's, it's that exacting kind of thinking is what's required uh, in the in the mind. So the fox aligns these two, and at their intersection, he jumps up in the air th- about three feet and dives nose first, his pointy little nose, into the bank of snow. And when he does that, he's 78% effective in catching his prey. So I thought that was really interesting. And then it, the next level that happened is, as I researched the fox, I found out uh, a Finnish story, a traditional story about the fox. And the fox, according to the the Finnish people, the aurora borealis came into being when a fox on a very cold winter night when the snow is crystalline and the moonlight just dances off off of the snow ice particles, that this little fox is walking through the snow and swishing its tail. And as he does, the crystals of snow rise into the heavens, into the starry nights, and there we have the aurora borealis. That's one level, all right? Two parts more to it. Why I thought that was germane to what we were doing with the dream work is because I had had an experience years ago driving in northern Alberta to teach a university course at one of the tribal areas. And it was a five hour drive. I was 
two thirds of the way into it late at night and I was very, very tired. So blazing along this open roadway, no cars in either direction for a couple of hours. And lo and behold, in front of me to the left, about 18 inch grass on, on either side of the road, I see the grass move a little bit and it kind of catches my eye and out slips a fox. And I hit the brakes of the car because I was worried if the fox crosses at this rate of speed, I'll hit it. So I slam on the brakes, the car stops. And when the fox sees me stop, it slips back into the grass. And I thought, I better stretch. I'm really getting tired here. So I get out, out of the car and I lift my arms. I'm stretching. I look up and there I saw it. The heavens were just filled with the aurora borealis, green and blue and and kind of uh, peach color just swirling in the heavens. If that fox hadn't stopped me, I would have missed it completely. Hmm. So here's another level. Now I'm seeing okay, fox dreams. We're looking at the fox, uh, what it's saying through the dreams. And then the final piece fell into place. It turned out that a group in Scotland, a young group of students, had made a movie about this finished creation story. And although we had worked 10 days on trying to get together the narrative, what was, what was an implicate order? And of course, there's not one truth about dreams. There's multiple truths, right? But what was a narrative that came through? And here comes this video. And when you watch the video, it's so evocative it it shows the it shows the creation of the stars and the uh, aurora. All the other animals get a place in the heavens when the moon, the moon calls on them, and they all get a place in the heavens as a constellation to bring light into the darkness. But the little fox didn't have any. He was feeling so sad, like wow, I don't get to be a star. And the moon says, "Who said the star is the only light in the heavens?" And with that, taps on the ice on the lake. And the fox looks down and sees the colors of the aurora. And then he, with a magic tap of the moon staff, the fox gallops up into the heavens and with his tail is running all over and creating the aurora. And, and that's the end of the show. When we watched it, we realized the report back, because at the end of the dream work, we give a narrative report in the form of a video with sound and, uh, and image, we give our report back to the community of dreamers so they can further reflect on the dreams. Um, and after all of the work doing that, 10 days of it, we realized it was done in the video and our PowerPoint was useless. We just needed to show the video. So there's the Fox medicine. It spun everybody around at every level. That's so rich and, and all these different levels and, and, and aspects of meaning. I mean, thank you so much for, for sharing that. But there's one thing uh, I, I do need to say about this dream work, and that is this. The people on the dream work, there was maybe one indigenous person on it. Everyone else was of European or Eastern European or Central Asian descent. And what it showed to us is that even with all the losses of indigenosity that Europe, for example, has suffered, that when we commit ourselves, we can see the power of the collective and we can see how the dream works to shape the correct, the collective and how the dream can present us with a set of unifying symbols that unites us and allows us to go forward and to be more intimate with the earth. So we can remember who we are, which you, you were referring to before. Even Western Europeans can remember who they are. Just like that. That fast. It just wells up. Well, that's, 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 I think that's very encouraging. I'd just like to ask you in closing a couple of other questions, Apila. One is, do you have a, a maxim or proverb that you live by or? I remember this Sioux Medicine man. She said, the power's not lost, you are. Then he said a second thing. 
you have the power, you must take care of it. That remembrance tells us we must get back our vital, alive connection with all living beings. And we can, we're not alone. The only reason we think that we're separate is that we're thinking in this linear way, but it's also our birthright to think we are all related. It's who we are. Doesn't belong to indigenous people. It belongs to all of us, but it isn't real until we live it. Being the one life in which we all are and the one mind, the one consciousness in which we live and move and have our being. And that's Skanakoa, the great tree of life. Indeed, indeed, <laughs> wonderful symbol. And then lastly, uh, Apila, is there any advice you might give from your current vantage point to your younger self? Yes, I would say, relax. It will all work out. Very good advice. Uh, some of my other guests have expressed similar sentiments by saying that we must trust life. Don't try and arrange everything. Life will unfold in perfect timing. Uh, and, and David, I need to say, you know, we American Indian people, we talk in stories and sometimes it's very hard. My Western side knows, well, just get to the point but in an indigenous way, you get to the point through overlapping stories. It's kind of like English people when you meet. And I've noticed when you really want to bond, you do these overlapping apologies. And it's a ritual that gets the job done. You're connected. And so connect I'm sorry if I took too long today with that story. No, it was, it was wonderful. But I, I wonder whether you'd like to just close with a, a prayer. Yes, I'm lighting this cedar now. Thank you, ancestors, for joining David and myself and the people who are listening to this. May the vibration, may the feeling, may the love of our ancestors, all of our relationships touch you Connect me with you and David with you and all of us with each other because we truly are one family, one ocean, one earth, one universe, one heartbeat. Woo! Thank you so much for all that wisdom coming from these stories and the levels of meaning and the interweaving that uh, you've been able to share with us. Thank you for your patience. Thank <laughs> you.